All right, good morning, everyone. We continue our study of life in the profoundest sense, eternal life and the intermediate state, the state between what we experience right now as life in Christ and uh, the resurrection of our bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. What happens, what happens between those two periods? That's what we're looking at. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Last week we did some work in John chapter 12, um, looking specifically at uh, the nature of the glorification of Christ and the glorification of Him uh, in His death, which gives us life. You could you can recall from John chapter 12 how Jesus speaks of the grain of wheat. If it only if it dies, only if it falls into the earth and dies, does it bear much fruit? Does it bring forth life? And then Jesus uses this to springboard off um, a more general teaching: whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So we talked about the nature of life, life in this world. Um, life in that which is to come, life inherent in ourselves as fallen beings, which is no life at all, and life in Christ, which is true and proper. So, just to kind of bring you up to speed, and we've been walking through John's Gospel, admittedly cherry-picking a few of the more prominent texts in regard to life, and we're going to sort of do that with one more instance before we move on to uh, Luke the Gospel of Luke, and some citations in Acts and St. Paul to gather and glean some more information regarding the intermediate state, the nature of life as such. So let's um, move on to John chapter 17. This is a short point, but I think a rather profound point. Now, as we noted uh, last week, John's Gospel is uh, the majority of John's gospel. I don't think that goes, I don't think that that um, takes it too far, is really a meditation on the passion of Jesus. And so here in chapter 17, we have the high priestly prayer um, recorded, to this extent at least, in John's gospel only. And this is, as you can see, if you look at the heading on chapter 18, immediately before they they depart into the garden where Jesus then is betrayed and arrested. So John chapter 17, this high priestly prayer. And the point we're after is right at the beginning of this prayer. In John's Gospel, this is kind of the climax of what we call Mandi Thursday, Mandatum Thursday, uh, a new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you. Isn't that an old commandment? <laughs> John's epistle is great on this, by the way. It is old, and yet it's new. It's of the same essence, and yet it takes on a new form. How is it precisely a new form? Well, Christ says not just love, but love as I have loved you. What's the climactic act of his love? The cross. And so the love is the same. It is an old commandment, to use John's kind of language, that you love. And yet it's a new commandment in this respect that it's specifically cruciform, specifically cross-shaped love. All right. And then this is uh, the climactic prayer of this entire evening. Of course, you have um, so much here in John's Gospel in regard to um, the upper room and what takes place. John chapter 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, which of course end with, take heart, I have overcome the world. We all need to hear that. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, interesting that this glorification, I mean, Jesus is talking about his passion and death. 
Obviously, John folds other elements of the Christic event into that. We've talked about how even the, the incarnation, the transfiguration, the ascension, Pentecost are all kind of um, woven into this theme of the crucifixion in John's Gospel. But it does still remain the crucifixion to which Jesus refers here when he says, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. In Christ crucified, the Father is glorified. In the preaching of Christ crucified, the Father is glorified. Big mistake of theology of all ages is, okay, well, that's enough of you, Jesus, out of the way. Let's, let's look at the Father now. Do you remember earlier in John's Gospel where Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, asked this very thing. Show us the Father and it will be enough. <laughs> and Jesus says, okay, let me get out of the way. No! <laughs> he says, have I, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. All right? So um, to see Christ and him crucified is to see the glorification of the Son, but it is also to see the glorification of the Father. There is no more perfect icon and image of the invisible God, of, of the Father's love, than Christ shedding his blood, pouring out his life for us and for the life of the world. All right, so um, glorify your Son that uh, the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. Isn't it nice that Jesus provides us a definition? But it's not one that we might expect. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Period. I remember the first time this dawned on me. It was one of these paradigm shifts in my own way of thinking. Uh, not thinking of heaven or paradise any longer so much as a geographic location, even though I believe it more or less in one way, shape, or form is. But if Jesus was absent from heaven, in what sense would it be heaven? It wouldn't at all. If Jesus were absent from a place called paradise, in what sense would it remain paradise? It wouldn't at all. And so this recognition that the heaven of heaven, the paradise of paradise, is Jesus. To know him, and thus through him, to know the only true God, his Father. This is the essence of eternal life, to know the one who is life. And so in this sense, we have eternal life right now. When our bodies die and we transition, we simply have eternal life. Which eternal life? The same eternal life. And we will always have this eternal life, even when we are finally resurrected in our bodies. It's not like, oh, now this is a different eternal life. No, it is one eternal life because it is one God who is eternal life. Or as Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay, as I said, it's kind of a minor point. I mean, I, yes and no. It's the beginning and foundation of this high priestly prayer, and it is a, an extremely profound point. It is just concisely made by our Lord, so concise that um, you might have skipped over it. So I think that that's a good way to end in a general sense. You could always add more, but in a general sense, the treatment of John's gospel in regard to the question of life and a, a rather profound understanding of life and then a rather profound understanding of eternal life and what it means to die, which of course, to quote right from Jesus, is no longer to die at all. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Um, and so to have life now, to have life in the intermediate period, as we might define it, to have life in the resurrection of all flesh at the end of the age. All right, I see a hand in the back, please. Yeah, when you read um, verse 2, since you have given authority of all, 
over all flesh to give eternal, this is my question, mm -hmm. to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Mm -hmm. Is that exclusionary like the Jews or is it? He's I think it's a monergistic expression. You're always going to, um, you know, where the scriptures, how I long to gather you together as a hen gathered her chicks, but alas, the father wouldn't allow it. No, but you would not have it, right? So the scriptures do speak of the cause of those who do not receive eternal life. And when it speaks of the cause, it speaks of the rejection of man. We have very clear statements, for example, that God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So um, why aren't they saved then? Not the fault of God, but the fault of man. Um, so this is a really simplistic way of putting the Bible's description of all of this. It's a complicated and difficult question. Our reason recoils. I don't mean to mislead you as to the simplicity of this, but I think it is actually quite simple to just speak faithfully as the Bible speaks. And if you were to summarize that, you might put it this way. You're in hell. Sorry. Whose fault is that? Yours. God longed to have you. He longed to gather you. He, he desired that you would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But for one reason or another, you rejected him. Okay. Flip the coin. You're in heaven. Why? Because I earned it. Because I merited. Because I made a decision for Jesus and Jones didn't. No. Because the Father called you, chose you in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit, by the power of the Word, converted you. So, if I'm in heaven, that's God's doing. If I'm in hell, that's my doing. Now, does the reason love, does, does fallen human reason love that answer? No. But why should we care about fallen human reason? Let me ask you that seriously. This fallen human reason grasp the Trinity? I'll spend like two minutes with you after class and show you it doesn't. Um, how about does it grasp the divinity and humanity in one person, in one, in one person of, uh, of Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. I'll spend one and a half minutes with you after class and demonstrate that to you. Does human reason care anything about um, the sacraments? No. Human reason is a hindrance to what the sacraments are. Human reason just says, all I see is water. That's all it is. All I see is bread and wine. That's all I taste. Can't possibly be these other things. It's weird. It's unfathomable. So why do we care what human reason thinks? And, and so it goes with every article of the faith, by the way. Um, every single article of the faith has this difficulty. Um, and what we're running up against is the, in the same way that there's a, that there's a difficulty for our fallen human reason to grasp that how is it that Jesus, for example, that Jesus is true God, he knows all things, and yet true man, he grows in wisdom and stature, and yet he's one person, not two? Can you, can you riddle me that one? Okay, if you can't riddle me that one, then neither are you going to be able to riddle me that we have gratia universalis and sola gratia. That is, that God has grace on all and desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of truth, and yet only those who do come to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, do so because of him. How can you put those two doctrines together? You can't. You can't. So you can't any more than you can put together that Christ both knows all and learns. You can't put it together that God desires all men to be saved and yet saves precisely those who are saved. Reason can't do it. It's almost, almost as if God's got a problem with human reason and desires to just be believed. Boy, where would that have come from? Well, we could point to any number of instances throughout the history of God's people, but how about the very first where God says, don't eat. There's death in there. And Eve goes, I don't know. It looks good for food. <laughs> uh, using my reason and senses, I like it. <laughs> Big trouble. God says, it's your reason and senses that got you in trouble in the first place because you didn't believe in me. Yeah, well, God, you said something over it against my reason and senses. My reason and senses told me this was good for food. You told me it was death. Yeah, and you didn't believe me. So now what is, what is all of New Testament doctrine? What is all of Old Testament doctrine that is the foundation of New Testament doctrine? I have said it. Believe. Set aside your reason um, and believe or 
to just put a little finer point on it, probably my favorite quote of Augustine, crede ut intelligas, believe in order to understand. Shut off your reason, receive the word of God, believe it like a child, now turn on your reason, not as Lord over what you've just heard, but as servant over what you've just heard. That's really what I hope is the exercise um, of, that you experience every Sunday here um, in Didache Hall as we teach. This is what the word of the Lord says. If that doesn't make sense, too bad. Reason isn't God. God is God. Let him speak. Turn off your reason. Let him speak. Turn on your reason now in defense of that word that he has spoken. Make sense? That's, I think that that's the way of theology. Okay, so anyway, a little digression there, but... Um, yeah, that's what we make of, that's what we make of that verse and others like it. There are many, many verses that speak, um, to, to, uh, the causality of salvation being God's. Lutherans fully affirm that. Um, we also, there are many verses that speak of the causality of damnation being man's. Thus we Lutherans affirm that. Okay. Anything else? Um, this text or John's Gospel or the tangent we went off on. There's a hand here. Pastor, I wanted to talk about what you were saying about uh, people want Jesus to get out of the way so they can see the Father. Oh, yes. <laughs> it, it, there is that tendency. When you talk about God in the Old Testament, you say, well, then God spoke. Oh, you mean Jesus did that? And, and no, no, God, God, you know, the father, he did it, right? That's what, right? Yeah. We have that tendency yeah. to just sort of think that the real God mm-hmm. is the father. Mm-hmm. And us saying, I, you know, I want to see the father, you know, Phillips, for example, yeah. statement, I, show us the father. Yeah. It's kind of like me saying to you, pastor, uh, I want to see you, but not your body. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Show me your, yourself, but not your body. Right. Yeah. It's an impossibility. I can't see you except through your body, right? And we can, cannot see God except through Christ. Exactly. Yeah. He's the express image of the invisible God. He's the icon of God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. Very well said. I mean, there again, you see reason being unreasonable. Oh. And by the way, reason has this built into it. I mean, reason itself will show you its own limitations and absurdities and incapabilities of grasping that which is true. So you, if you want to be thoroughly rational, go ahead and be thoroughly rational. Reason itself will show you its bounds. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's sufficiently said. It's a tool. It's a tool that's good insofar as it's good and helpful insofar as it's helpful. There's ways to use the tool and ways to misuse the tool. Um, we give thanks to God for reason as the good tool that it is. We understand that though the sinful nature will grasp that tool and use it as a hammer against God's word. We're not going to allow that. It's futile. Please. You mentioned we turn off our reason at times, but then we turn it back on. Can you give us some examples to put more uh, flesh on that for me uh, to help me understand? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, let me just stick to the one I brought up, okay? Um, if if Jesus is, is God, he knows all things. If he's true God, he knows all things. Um, and we could go find proof text to that effect. Um, Jesus grows in wisdom and stature. Stature being physical maturity, but wisdom, that being intellectual ability, you know. So how is it that he knows all things and yet grows in knowledge, grows in wisdom? Reason simply recoils. So what does reason choose? One or the other. Okay. Or some bifurcation of the person of Christ that ends up with two Christs, not one. Okay. So you would say, well, there's a Christ who is this is his human nature and he doesn't know things and this is his divine nature and he does know things. Okay. But now, now in what way have I articulated Christ as one person or as two persons? One who knows something and another who, one who knows everything and another who only knows some things. So that would be an historianizing, a division of the person of Christ, right? 
So that, those are sort of your options. You either negate one, you negate the other, you kind of Nestorianize, which is negating the third category, namely his oneness of person. What we see here is we see that religion or reason is not the tool of religion. Reason is not the tool of faith. Um, so this is, um, yeah, I mean, to articulate this formally, we would use the categories of fetus qua and fetus quae. Okay, fetus qua is faith of the heart that receives the word of God and simply says, Amen. That's fetus qua. Fetus qua is the content of that faith. These doctrinal touchstones that we've been talking about and can point to. Okay, so what's missing from fetus qua, the content of the faith, and fetus qua, that gift that the Holy Spirit gives us which grasps the content of the faith, what's missing there is reason. Reason not required. This, by the way, is why little children very frequently trump adults in terms of faith, (laughs) in terms of the grasping of theology. Because in many respects, theology isn't a game of figure this out, which adults are always trying to do. Theology is a game of listen and repeat. No, 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 you didn't listen. (laughs) Listen and repeat. Okay, now you got it. That's theology. Over and over, that's theology. Over and over, that's sermon writing. That's studying theology. That's formulating ideas and, and organizing those ideas in your mind. Let, let reason go. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear it fresh. Hear it new. Receive it as a child. Receive it as good soil. Be careful how you hear, Jesus says. Okay. Um, Now, as you've received it, turn on your brain, turn on your intellect. Just use your brain, your intellect, your reason in service of the word. So here's another distinction that's probably very helpful in thinking about these things and was from the time of, maybe even preceding the Reformation. I have to look, but certainly from the Reformation forward. Magisterial versus ministerial use of reason. Okay, magisterial, you can hear majesty. So think of, think of reason sitting on a throne. I think of reason sitting on a throne and reason is handed God's word. The Son of God knows all things. The Son of God grows in wisdom. Reason says, well, it can't be both. Right? Or it can be both in such a way that the divine nature and the human nature aren't one person. But those are your alternatives. It's one, the other, or neither. But it's not, um, you can't come from a rational standpoint to believe that Christ is true God and true man in one person. So reason's just going to reject that. This frankly is just the, this is the path of um, all heresies. So all heresies realize that there's, there's an intractable conundrum. Um, something that can't be solved by reason and theology, and so one side is taken or the other. Um, we as Lutherans just want to recognize that and refuse to derivate from the Word of God, even if reason recoils. Everybody else is screaming, that doesn't make sense. That's the wrong organ. <laughs> it's not supposed to make sense. It's supposed to be received fetus qua by the heart. So you, we use the right organ for faith, um, fetus qua to receive what God's word says, then we turn on our reason in service to that. So we're not using reason, reason magisterially as I'll decide what's what and what makes sense and this can't possibly be so I'll determine this is all magisterial reason. Ministerial reason says, what do you say, Lord? This is your body. I don't see it. I don't taste it. I don't know that it's there, I can't sense it, I can't understand how your body could be in heaven and here and on it, I don't, I don't get this, but ministerial reason says to itself, be quiet, God is talking. There's a higher person here than you reason, and that's God. So let God speak again, oh, this is my body. I believe. I can't understand. Let me describe nonetheless the way in which it's true. I mean, of course, the irony of all this is even as I'm speaking, this is a ministerial use of reason. So we're not against reason. We're not against intellectual 
aspects of theology. We are against a magisterial use of reason that runs over the top of a text. We Lutherans would rather have reason be left in shambles and have our enemies laughing that, oh, this is unreasonable and irrational. We'd say, so be it. Is it faithful? Is it listen and repeat? Is it what God himself teaches? We would rather be faithful and a fool in your eyes than rational and a fool in God's eyes. And that's precisely the the equation there. So hopefully that hopefully that helps, gives you some... Uh, and, and by the way, I mean, as you drink this in, this will have you doing theology in a Lutheran way. And really, frankly, doing theology in a more small-c Catholic way. In the radical reformers, reason, the magisterial use of reason, picks way up. And then at, in the Enlightenment and after the Enlightenment, it's like steroids. And now all of theology is practically rationalism. And if you listen to any of the popular theologians, you know, from Notre Dame or Princeton or wherever else that are put on YouTube, and they've vacated the field. They've entirely vacated the field of theology and just given over to all kinds of, uh, philosophical and theological presuppositions that they don't think they can defend. And their answers are completely, I, I mean, just they're absolute water. There's just nothing to them whatsoever. Because they vacated the field because they've been cowed by reason into, a vaca into vacating the field. Yeah. So that's where the anemia comes from in quote-unquote academic theology. And it's why really a seven-year-old child, even in, as in Luther's day, knows more than the Pope and the scholastics and the learned professors of theology because a the little child goes, this is what God's Word says. That's it. You don't like it? Don't make intellectual excuses for it. This is what it says. Yeah. Okay, I, I thought I saw it. Yeah, please. Just quickly, just as an example of that, when we went, we joined a church and uh, went to the new member class, and there were some new Christians in the class. And so the pastor started out by just saying, with the Bible, just, you know, this is the Word of God. We're not going to debate whether it is the Word of God or not. Just, just trust that it's the Word of God, <clears throat> and then it'll all start making sense to you as we mm -hmm. go forward. So it's kind of like that suspending your reason. Just believe this is the word of God, and then it makes sense. Sure, sure, absolutely, absolutely. There's different ways of approaching that, but that's absolutely the case. I mean, so to go back to, I mean, to go back to this idea of like, well, how do we, how do we reconcile in our minds this idea that God wants all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, but He alone can save, and only some are saved. That's a kind of contradiction in our minds, even though we see it taught that way in scriptures. There's, um, there's two ways of alleviating that tension. Well, there's actually three ways, just one's immediately outside the pale of, um, and that's to say, outside the pale of Orthodox Christianity, that's to say that in the end, everyone's saved. Universalism is an answer to that question. Okay, but now within the pale of Christendom, how is that conundrum answered? In two ways. Um, other than the Lutheran way. Uh, John Calvin says, I mean, this is really like just kind of binary and easy once you grasp it. John Calvin says it can't possibly be that God causes some to be saved and does not also subsequently cause the rest to be damned. Reason goes, yeah, makes sense. What's the problem? You've got God causing damnation. How do you reconcile that with the text that say God desires no one to be saved? If he doesn't desire them to be saved, I mean, if he, if he desires all to be saved, how on earth is he going to cause some to be damned, right? So it fails by its own, you know, once you put the word of God next to it, the rationality of it breaks down. So Calvin just wants to say God is the cause of both things. What does Arminius want to do on the free will side? He just wants to say man is the cause of both things. So if, if you're in heaven, it's because you made a decision for Jesus. It's, if you're in hell, it's because you rejected Jesus. Okay. So one just puts all of the onus on God. The other puts all of the onus on man. And they're both half right. And they're both half wrong. The half right of Calvinism is yes, God causes salvation. The half wrong is he doesn't cause damnation. The half right of Arminianism is, yeah, if you're in hell, it's because you rejected God. Right? But the flip side is not true, that you 
chose him and therefore are in heaven. I mean, even at the most base level, this is ridiculous. Like, because why am I in heaven and Jones isn't? Because I made a choice for you, Lord Jesus, and Jones didn't. You can see how, well, where's the cross? Well, the cross was equally for me and equally for Jones, but the cross is ineffectual. It doesn't have anything to do with the causation of salvation. The causation of salvation in Arminianism and free will theology is solely the choosing of the chooser. So salvation is 100% up to us. We know that that's not right. I mean, I would rather probably be Calvinist than Arminian, but I don't want to be wrong or wrong. (laughs) So I'm going to stick with the scriptures and just what they say, and guess what's going to be screaming at me? My reason. Great. So be it. Eve's reason was screaming at her, and she should have heeded God's word and not ate the fruit. (laughs) And her reason was screaming, eat it, it looks delicious. She should have said right then, quiet reason, God has spoken. I'm going to let that be. And that really is the Lutheran way of theology is, silence reason, God has spoken. Believe it, confess it, now turn on reason and defend what God has said. Please. So um, I was debating an employer I had once who was Mormon. And this Mormon said to me, isn't God the author of all things? And I said, yes. And he said, well, he's the author of reason. And what you're saying to me, you Lutherans are crazy. This doesn't make sense. Mm. If he's the author of reason, it should make sense. And so I gave him the man's wisdom is God's folly scripture. And I said, we're not crazy because reason is... It can be manipulated across the board. What makes sense to one man won't make sense to another, and vice versa. But God's truth is always God's truth. That's really hard for a person to accept. Yeah. I mean, I just, how gloriously healthy and freeing it is to say that reason isn't, isn't a set of shackles. Reason's a tool that can be used freely in service of God's word, in service of neighbor. It's beautiful. Um, Where reason becomes the modus operandi of of one's theology or one's philosophy or one's worldview, it's it's completely enshackling. It, It enslaves a person to his own reason and limits that person in accord to his own reason. You know, this is where you find like people who, quote unquote, I only think in a scientific way. I'm sorry, you're a child. Because you only think according to this one little set of precepts. This is the only way you come to knowledge. I bet you betray that every day of your life when you believe and trust and know all kinds of things that you haven't ascertained via the scientific method. You see, so this kind of self-limiting is really bizarre. It's really bizarre. Why can't we say the scientific method is a is a tool? Reason is a tool. There are other kinds of tools that we have. Frankly, emotions are a tool. It's one of the reasons sometimes where we get in trouble with our wives as husbands. We're too rational and not enough emotional. (laughs) Oh, you've got a problem? Let me solve that for you. Oh, you didn't like my solution? You know, like, okay, what if you approach this in terms of emotion? Oh, you needed an ear. You needed sympathy. You needed compassion. Uh, Yeah, that was it. That was all I needed. So, again, that's just an example of if all you have is reason, look at how you've narrowed your humanity and stripped yourself of the wide breadth and range of what it means to be human. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. Um, Another hand? I guess this topic's of interest. I hope to all. If I can just say one thing about reason, you, you just take as an example, Jesus is omniscient and yet he learns. Sure. Okay. Now that you're right. It, you know, our reason recoils from that and sure. so on. I would go, I would say this though, that if you say, okay, logic, that's a logical contradiction. I wouldn't go that far. Maybe I, you're right. I'd say, you know what? It can get worked out. Mm-hmm. I don't know how mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because uh, oddly enough, Jesus may have been omniscient. But I'm not. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> so I may not know all the answers to these things. Right. And this is what we have to recognize. God's ways are not our ways, and his right. thoughts are not our thoughts. He, 
There's a lot of these things, they don't look good to us, but in the end, God knows, and it all works out. Don't worry, God's, God isn't irrational. Don't worry. Right, right. That's very well said. It's very well said. Because again, what reason are we talking about? Since the Enlightenment, we've talked about reason as if it's this pure light. Wait, a pure light coming from the darkness of fallen human flesh. Does that make one lick of sense? No. Our reason itself is going to be darkened and distorted by virtue of the fact that it's the reason of a fallen human being, or the reasoning of a collective of fallen human beings. You don't get good fruit from a bad tree. I think someone famous once said that. So how are you going to expect reason to be right when you're wrong and the whole of humanity is wrong? So that's a great point um, that we're not saying that God is inherently irrational. We're saying that we're incapable of grasping his rationality. Um, you can take two different tracks on this. You can take the track that I just took, namely uh, on account of our fallenness, but you could also take the track, if you wanted, on um, reason of our uh, being creatures. We're assuming that there isn't some sort of super rationality that transcends, which is a silly assumption. So you can think about it in those terms, no doubt about it. But to keep it simple, what's the, what's the art of theology? What does God's word say? That's what I believe. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's it. Okay, did I see another hand? Yes, please. One, sec one second, we have to get you the microphone. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's an, another side of this that sort of says that um, we should condemn reason we should condemn rationality and case in point there's so many there's there's been talk of the investigation of our dna is evil and i think that that's taking religion into a place it should not be and and so i'm saying that you, uh, you of course you're obviously right there's you know, there's certain beings we can understand that, that in, in the realm of religion, mm -hmm. and there's a division there. I appreciate that. But mm -hmm. when we have people that are coming using religion to condemn those people who are investigating science and DNA mm -hmm. in order to help suffering humanity, mm -hmm. I think they're wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the, that, that's the way we push it too far. Hmm, interesting, yeah. Well, I could certainly think of examples of that um, where there would be an abuse of, uh, the, you know, if I'm thinking of kind of like a fundamentalistic kind of Christian, kind of a backwoods kind of Christianity that just says, well, we don't trust that there's science. You know? <laughs> and, and that's it, right? And, um, you know, anything to do with a laboratory or science or critical thought is just like, well, I don't think that's in the Bible. You know, that, yeah, okay. Yeah, point taken. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, and I think you'd probably agree with me, it's a, it's a really touchy interface when we get into the ethics of um, where we get past exploration and we get into application of some of our DNA technologies and this kind of thing. Um, we, we, want to, we want to be theologically informed in terms of our ethics of those issues because... I mean, I don't know. There's not a chapter and verse for this, but I'm pretty sure God doesn't really want us to create rat hybrid humans that run around with supercomputer helmets on and take over the world. I mean, just a thought. Just a thought. There are some things that we can do that just because we can, theology would rightly say we probably shouldn't. And here I'm, I'm not trying to touch on anything particular or anything controversial. I'm just trying to say, generally speaking, as a rule, we want to, we want to have our ethics informed, even in the scientific sphere, by, by God and natural law. Yeah, yeah. So thank you for that. Thank you. Okay. Was there anything else? Let's go into Luke, Luke chapter 23, to, um, to, the instance in the Bible that's used to prove whatever you happen to want to prove. The thief on the cross. Don't worry, we won't try to overstate things. Um, 
So, for example, the thief on the cross is always brought up. This, I'm brought up. This is Luke chapter 23, and we're only we're going to be、um, spending our time really just around verse 39 or so, and following.、Um, but of course, of course, the thief on the cross always comes up as the test case for baptism, which is. Foolish on both sides because we don't know if he was baptized or not. So, like, who cares?、Um, but also, I mean, just to answer the question, can you be saved without baptism? Yeah, Jesus in Mark sixteen sixteen says, "Whoever does not believe will be condemned."、Okay? What is the first part? Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Okay, so I mean, there, there too, you might be inclined, since we're on the topic, to find a logical contradiction. Two conditions of being saved, only one condition of being bapti-、uh, of being condemned. Baptism excluded in the second half. How does that make sense? Well, it makes sense if you think if you're thinking theologically rather than in an overly tight rationalistic sort of way.、Um, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Baptism and faith aren't pitted against each other.、Um, one is the is the receptor of baptism,、um, and these two things commonly work together for the salvation of man. But what if one wasn't baptized but still believed? Second clause: It's only unbelief that condemns, not a lack of baptism that condemns. And so, look, it's all kind of a moot point because do we say baptism is necessary? Yes, as the scriptures themselves say. But is it absolutely necessary? No. God isn't like, ah, huh, Rody. I see that you had faith, but ah, you got in a car accident right before you got baptized. Sorry, <laughs> no, no. I, God, God is not this way. Theology is not this way. God does not sit up there with a divine checklist, ready to nail you for some technicality.、Um, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. That is the natural course. You believe in Jesus. Jesus says to be baptized. You're going to be baptized.、Um, if you don't believe, baptized or not, you're condemned. Because again, what is what is unbelief? Unbelief is simply asserting that God, who is the truth, is in fact a liar. And who's the true liar? Who's the father of all lies? Satan. So, what is it to say that God is a liar? It's to say that God is Satan. And now you can see why unbelief, false belief, is damnable. Whew. Speaking of that, is it toasty in here to anyone else, or am I just getting all worked up? <laughs> I am dressed like a solar panel up here in front of these lights, just absorbing everything. But if there's a way to bring it down a little, my blood might、uh, reliquify. Yeah, thank you, Barry. Okay, so、um, yeah, well, all that digression aside,、um, Luke twenty-three. Let's look at what's said. Now, these are usually thought to be the second words of Christ chronologically that he speaks on the cross. The first words. Um, Luke, cha- same chapter, chapter twenty-three.、Um, just glance at thirty-four. Okay, Jesus has、um, just been crucified in the proper sense,、um, with two criminals, one on his right hand, one on his left, and Jesus said, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." Chronologically speaking, that that is the first. Words that Jesus speak on the cross. I think I mentioned this last week that、um, when you combine all the gospel accounts together, there are seven words that he speaks on the cross. Chronologically, the second words,、um, or at least it's most commonly thought, come in verse forty-three. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, going back to verse thirty-nine, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. Okay, interestingly,、um, another of the gospel accounts—I don't think I wrote down which one in specific—refers、um, to both, both of the criminals、um, railing against him. Just trying to double check quick if it's in Luke. I don't think it is. Anyway,、um, so they both begin the crucifixion as against Jesus, as antagonistic to him, railing and hurling insults. Okay. Then、um, we see one continues on. That's verse thirty-nine. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, "Are you not the Christ? Save yourself." And us. Notice that I, I think we 
we flash by this because we're so interested in proving whatever we want to improve with the other guy. But look at this. I mean, this is a satanic kind of temptation if ever there was one. Remember Satan in the garden, if you are the Son of God, are you not the Christ? And then remember the devil's temptations are basically like, save yourself. Make bread. Here, save yourself and us. What does he mean? Does he mean salvation? Does he mean take away sins? Does he mean create? No. He means just get me out of this jam. It's really a, a satanic kind of parodying here of um, true salvation and the true role of the Messiah. Okay, now in 40, we see this change. Again, if we're taking the gospel accounts as a whole, we see this change in the other man. The other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Very interesting. The, um, the original language um, for, for criminals is, is evildoers. And here, this man has done nothing evil, nothing wrong. Verse 42, And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, your reign. And he said to him, Amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. All right, I love this because in the two men crucified um, next to Christ, you have this beautiful type of the two kinds of human beings on earth. There's only these two. We're all condemned to death and justly. We're all evildoers. And then Christ, the Son of God in His mercy, comes down in the form of a servant under the law. He innocent and yet dying with us as one condemned. One of the men rails at Him, spits at Him, despises Him, hates Him, rejects Him, we assume to His dying breath. The other begins this way and at some point in time is transformed by the words and conduct of Christ and comes to conclude in his innocence. If we want to be super tight and literalistic, I don't know that we do, but what are the words that convert this man? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even as he's probably hurling his insults before, during, and after that statement, but somehow, some way, those words have their work in him and he's converted to the point where he rebukes the other, calls him to repentance, and then confesses Christ. This man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All right, and he said to him, Amen, I will say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So we gain a couple of things when we're looking to the question of the intermediate state. What happens to the thief's body? It goes into the grave. What happens to the thief's soul? Today you will be with me in paradise. Not at a later time, not the resurrection of all flesh, but today. And also then, this language of paradise, this etymology of this tracks back to the language of garden. This is why um, the Garden of Eden is commonly referred to as paradise. Now, I don't want to read too much into that, except just that the word itself lends itself to directing our attention to something which is concrete and is known, namely a garden, namely Genesis, namely the beginning of all things, this time, made new. And this is the word, the concept that Jesus holds out to the man and assures him of, today you will be with me, okay, that's the essence of life, as we just saw from John's Gospel. And we together will be in paradise, having that root and origin of garden. All right. Yes, please. Well, I want to understand a little bit more about this. Uh, that the thief says, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom, which is he is expecting him to come to earth into his kingdom. But Jesus said that he will be with him in paradise. It was like up there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. if Steve is, at, is talking about down here. I don't know if you have any comment about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so if you, if you glance back at uh, verse 36, the soldiers mocked him coming up and offering him uh, sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Okay, so he, you know, in one sense too, this factors into the thinking of the repentant uh, criminal. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's a sense in which I believe you are the king, the king of the Jews, and I believe your kingdom has not yet come, but will come. This This would have all the hallmarks of an eschatological idea, realizing that this is the true Christ, the Son of God, and that he will return in judgment and establish his kingdom. And I want to be remembered on that day. I want to be part of your kingdom on that day. So it's an eschatological request. And Jesus fulfills that with immediate reassurance today, not just then, but today you will be with me in paradise. Something similar happens, parallel happens, if you remember from John's Gospel, uh, John chapter 11, where Lazarus dies and Jesus comes and says, you know, is is speaking with uh, Martha, and she says, um, I know there will be, he will rise on the last day. It's very similar to this, when you come into your kingdom, remember me, like postponing all the hope to the end. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection, I have something for you today. And here he says, I have something for you today, today you will be with me in paradise. So this is, this is one of, of many places, I mean, if we didn't have this, we'd still have sufficient, no doubt about it. But this is one of many places in the Bible, in the New Testament specific, where we glean that believers in Christ, the day they die, are with the Lord and with Him in paradise. Um, now, again, we don't want to use this text to disprove too many things, but do note that he's a condemned criminal who hasn't had time to do much, if any, penance, and there's no mention of purgatory. In 456 million years, you will be with me in paradise. Cheerio! <laughs> no, today you will be with me in paradise. So we have this great comfort and assurance that those who die go immediately to the Lord and are with him, which is the heart of heaven and the heart of all of our peace, by the way. I mean, when, when we comfort ourselves with those who have died, um, especially those who are, you know, we have some sense of like guardianship over or care for or love for in a sort of paternal way um, to realize that they are with the Lord Jesus and therefore more safe with him than ever with us and more blessed with him than ever with us. This is our whole comfort with Jesus in paradise. Yeah, so thank you for pointing that out. Great, great detail there. All right, so from from the red letters themselves, from the mouth of Christ himself. Today you will be with me in paradise. All right, um, let's pause there just due to time today, and we'll pick up, um, maybe we'll reminisce just a little bit on this. If you have any loitering questions next week, let me know. Otherwise, we're going to move into Acts and then some of the words of St. Paul and others. The Lord be with you.